from Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Welcome to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name's Peter Kelly and I'm your host for today. Um, unfortunately, Hattie's had a, some IT issues down in the deep dark south um and uh, it's just going to be me and my guest um i'm happy to introduce what for me has probably been one of the inspirations uh for much of the work that i've done over the over the last 25 years and i would put him in the legend category so if you could introduce yourself who is a special guest today yeah uh Great talking to you again, Peter. It's been many, many years since we've uh, been friends. Uh, my name is uh, Kerry Cooper. I'm professor of organizational psychology and health at uh, the Alliance Manchester Business School of the University of Manchester. And I've been working in the field of uh, workplace mental health and stress prevention for many years. You have indeed been working there. And so... You know what, Kerry? I, I mean, we've we've sat down on 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 many occasions, including in Houston, um, Houston Station, a few months ago. I'd be really keen to know what got you interested in work-related stress, and particularly sort of you know how we how we now what we now view as psychological health and safety of work. And am I am I right, Kerry? Are we nearly at fifty years of work here? Exactly. Well. Probably even more. Well, its origins are more than 50, but it's definitely been 50 years. Basically, I did this work and I started working in this field in about 1974. But I think what what stimulated me came before that. In other words, when I was a student at UCLA uh, and doing my uh, MBA as a working class lad, I had no option but to work while I was doing my undergraduate and my MBA at UCLA. And I got a job in the summer working as a social worker in the city of Watts, a very deprived black area of LA, as a full-time social worker. And it was only supposed to be summer, but actually it carried on uh, because I really enjoyed it, and they allowed me flexibility to fit in the work as a social worker. And I was looking at deprived areas of L.A. I was looking at the uh, uh, the, the black community in in Watts, but I was also looking at at people who were homeless in the in the city center of L.A. The, these were my clients, and although my trajectory was supposed to be that I was going to enter, maybe become a, a tax lawyer or something like that. All my friends were going into the law. We all came from Eastern European Jewish backgrounds, most of my friends. And I was first generation American. And I was going to be this lawyer like everybody else. But what I saw in Watts, what I saw among the homeless made me think, I can't do that. I've got to do something different. So I started taking psychology classes as a part, well, it was actually a part of my MBA anyway, because I was doing a behavioral science MBA. And then I thought to myself, I've got to do something that's more meaningful than helping people um, uh, avoid tax or, you know, have to pay less tax or whatever, getting, becoming a tax lawyer. So 
in the end, I shifted. And that, I think, made me think about what contribution could I make. Then go back up to about when I entered the University of Manchester Institute of Science and Technology, you missed in 1974. One of my wonderful PhD students was doing a project with me. Uh, one of the first projects I did when I when I arrived, she was doing a project. We were jo jointly doing a project with a big uh, uh, international company, and we were looking at why a senior executives uh, were not prepared to move from one continent to another. And so we were looking at mobility among senior execs, and and this organization was having difficulty getting their senior people to go, and this was a global company, to go from one country to another country as part of their career. When we started to delve into this, these were early 1970s, we kept hearing the word from these people, stress. I don't need the stress. I have a family, young family. I don't want to shift them around the world. Um, I don't care how much they pay me. Um, it'll be a much more stressful job for me. Uh, adapting to a country, but also taking that level, next level up. So we kept hearing the word stress. At that time in the early 70s, there wasn't much research on stress. The major research was done at the University of Michigan, looking at role stress, the role I play at work and how that might stress me, how much control, how much conflict I have and, and topics like that. But that was the only thing. And that company we were doing the work for we said okay we're doing this work for you research applied research would you give us access to all your senior people there were about 250 at the top of the organization and they said uh, sure and i said to my phd student why don't we shift your work why don't we why don't we look at stress among senior execs not many people have done that we have access to all these people and data as well on them and that's how we started the work. So the first one, first study I ever did uh, with my PhD student uh, was on executive stress, looking at the people at the very top of the organization. And from then on, we started to publish on that. And then all sorts of unions, senior management would get in touch with us in a variety of different sectors and said, can you come and do some work with us on that? We're finding that people... Uh, we're finding that stress-related ill health is starting to increase in our organization, and we want to try to nip it in the bud. So that's how, basically, I started. Yeah, isn't it funny, though? The same things we're talking about then, we're still talking about now, aren't we, Kerry? 50 um, years later. I, I think we've yeah. made a lot of progress, Peter. I, I'll tell you what we've done. I think... We've gone just beyond stress management. So in the 1970s and 1980s, organizations were into what do we do to help people manage stress, whether it was doctors, nurses, IT people, senior managers, whatever occupation. And I did something like 80, 85 different occupations from airline pilots to uh, people working on oil rigs in the North Sea. I've done all that and published tons of papers and books on all of these things. But at the time, it was about let's identify what the problems are. 
and let's help people manage their stress. And the focus then early on in the 70s and early 80s was how do we help the individual cope with a yeah. uh, a, ba- a bad job or a per or a poor a very poor organizational culture. So the the orientation was on the individual, not on the organization itself and how do we create the right kind of climate. That's how the research started to morph as we got into the 90s and the 2000s into, yeah, we have to help individuals cope uh, with their job, but we also, and that's the individual orientation, but also how do we create well-being cultures? How do we prevent stress in the first place as much as we can? There'll always be uh, a need to focus on the individual to some extent, but if you change the culture of the organization, and that's the construct of well-being in a sense, workplace well-being, then maybe you will minimize uh, the damage that organizations do to individuals, and um, and then you can focus more on the individual. But and that's where we are, and we're making good progress on that. Now that I must admit. And it's not just about, I mean, obviously, it's partly about what the, for example, NIOSH, the uh, HSC, the health and safety executive in the UK, and many international health and safety bodies uh, are concerned about, uh, which is, you know, um, mental ill health in the workplace, you know, the common mental disorders of anxiety, depression, and stress, which are in the developed world, the leading cause of long-term sickness absence. Absolutely no question about it. And by the way, it's been the leading cause for decades. So that is certainly certainly one of the drivers, Peter, I think, that uh, by organizations. But I think another driver, an important driver, uh, in recent times, say over the last 10 years, has been um, what a senior HR person said to me in a meeting I was in. It was in a bank, was having this meeting with a senior, an HR director. And I said, you guys have never done anything in the field of kind of stress or well-being. Why are you doing it now? And he said two words, regrettable turnover. I thought, that's great. I have to write a book on that. Uh, so what do you what do you mean by that? And he said, because of what happened in 2008 to 2015, the financial crisis, we have lost so many people that we can't afford. We're now mean and lean. We can't afford to lose anybody else. So what he meant by regrettable turnover is we can't afford to lose key people we currently have, and we need to attract people into the organization. So we better change the culture lying down and you know on beanbags and uh, having sushi at your desk and massages and the well-being day is not the solution to this problem we have to change the culture so for the last 10 15 let's say 15 years there's been a move toward how do we change workplace culture so it doesn't stress people out so people feel motivated they feel they want to stay People are attracted to that organization and they deliver to the bottom line in terms of performance. Yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, you've been doing this for 50 years. I've, I've been sort of chipping away for 25 years. What's it for me, right? I've always felt the evidence base for what it looks like is very easy. It's clear. 
yeah so the evidence is clear that um we can describe what stress looks like but we can describe what mental ill health in the work um one frustrating element and and is we haven't really got people to do research on interventions what works when you've identified the problem what does that look like so um do you think that um we had we've talked about making positive strides and in, in getting people to assess the culture but where do we sit on interventions do, um and why is it that uh well, i know there is there are probably several reasons why people don't do intervention research but is that not the next the next thing that we should be really, well, the thing we should have been doing for the last 25 years not just the next thing but um what, what are your feelings on that so it's about yeah i I think you've hit I think you've hit a really important point here. And part of the reason people don't do research on that is because we can't do it's not easy to do in a real live working environment. Uh, uh, you know, uh, randomly controlled experiments, um, you know, uh, randomizing our samples and and doing very good systematic uh, research that you might do in a biology lab we just can't do that and that's one aspect of it and it is complicated by that that's one but the other aspect is who's doing the research it tends to be academics who do this research and they find it very difficult to publish in journals that uh there are not many journals that will accept um articles where it's not randomized control groups and the rest of it very systematic therefore they find it difficult publishing however that is changing and i've had three or four phd students in recent years who've done intervention studies which are not uh as well controlled as they could be because you're operating in a real live environment you're operating in organizations workplaces and they have published so it's getting published therefore it's encouraging people to do it it is more complicated because things intervene in between as you're doing real live intervention studies you can do it on training that's not difficult if you're looking at a training intervention those are reasonably easy to do uh, but there's a whole range of interventions that are more complicated to look at and so the phd students and the people doing this research go for the easy path and that's why we don't have as much yeah. but the good news is that the good news is that more and more researchers and scientists are saying hey we need to do this stuff and we will find outlets and they they have and and journals are are becoming a bit more liberal to allow this to occur because we need the science we need to build up the science on interventions and we're we're getting there um so yeah. I, I think there is there is hope uh, but you can see what the constraints are being. Randomized control studies are just difficult to do in a in a in a, a live organizational context. But I have a PhD yeah. student now who's doing interventions on email, uh, so email interventions in when when in one big government department and one big multinational, and it's and she's just submitted and she's having her vibe in the next two weeks really great piece of work 
difficult yeah. to do, right. but she did it. And 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 that's the kind of thing we need. We need the, the we need the the new generation of people who are less constrained. Who said, "I think this is important. I want to make a contribution." And when you do intervention studies, you do make a major contribution because the studies on the link between stress and individual health outcomes is already been done. We know what causes people to get stressed at work. We know all the factors. Yes, there are some new ones, but we know what they are. And that science, I think, has been done, and that's been easier to do. Now we're having to go into a new generation of, of, of study intervention studies. They will emerge, they are emerging, and we will be able to understand what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, you know, Kerry, when um, one of the difficult things, uh, you know, we, we went when I was working in HSC, uh, is you go into an organisation saying we want you to, we want you to control and manage the, the risk here. You know, the, what are the hazards? Um, but actually, when they're saying, okay, but do that, but what works? And and then, and we were constantly looking for examples of what works. You know, and 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 if you went purely back to the academic literature. You would get things that 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 um, you know. There's a very limited research base that said what works. Um, it was interesting, you know, and when um, you came forward um, with uh, with asset, your tool was a very practical example of you know uh, of uh, of doing things to to help the organisation to identify and. Um, well, because I'm, yeah, I don't know about you, but I've watched uh, since lockdown, uh, and, and really during lockdown, there's been an absolute flooding of of people coming onto the market with with goods, with with you know apps for this and apps for that, um, mm. and when you actually sit down and look at the evidence base, uh, so the evidence base for like the management standards, the evidence base for asset, there was a solid amount of work that went into developing that. But I think I feel that maybe what we've got now is such a, a a disturbed sort of space of apps that we don't know what really does work. So I'm beginning. Do you think we will eventually get to a more systematic approach to the to how we hopefully can do this? Because it just feels a little bit messy when you've got an app that has no evidence base but is pure is out there and doing supposedly helping yeah. people. Well, sometimes the apps are there to make money for the people who develop the apps. They're easy. Employers buy them because they're easy. Listen, we make this available to our employees and, you know, then we're we're in the well-being space. It's got to be strategic. This whole area has to be strategic. Let me tell you what I think is what I think the future will hold in this in this area. Okay, number one. We'll have the science. We'll have the researchers in universities throughout the the world, in Australia, the UK, the US, all over the world, doing research, uh, more intervention type research, more answering the question of what works. That I'm not worried about. I'm seeing the progress of that. Here's what really I think I'm I'm pleased to see happen. So I had a University of Manchester spinoff company called Robertson Cooper, which I sold a couple of years ago. But one of our clients was a big construction company. And here's this is from an intervention point of view. 
What I liked about what they did is this. They had a director of health and well-being who reported both to HR and to health and safety within this big uh, uh, global company. Okay, but what was good about them? And this is why we need kind of strategic well-being. And this is why we, in, why you're looking at, 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 at the baseline within an organization is this. What they did is they used to quarterly on their senior leadership team, this is the chief exec and his team, quarterly spend an hour every quarter looking at employee health and well-being. So here's what they did. They used to do diagnostics like using an asset and, and things like that to find out how people perceive their organization. They'd see a problem in one part of the organization and they would do themselves the intervention. So the, the asset tool was, in, uh, was very useful in helping them to focus in on what a problem was at a particular moment in time in that organization, that, that in that particular uh, part of the organization there'd be one problem and another part, there might be another problem. They do the interventions and then they would actually collect the data before and after the intervention. And that was presented the next quarter to the board meeting, to the senior leadership team. That's the way uh, the intervention should actually work. So you get the scientists on the one hand doing their research to try to answer the question of what works. But then you get the organization themselves saying, let's find out, let's get employee voice. Let's measure frequently how employees perceive our organization. Let's try, let's identify the problems early. Let's decide on working with the employees, decide on what intervention will work in that context. Not just assume you know what will work, um, that you think, oh, well, we find that overload is a problem, therefore we'll put more people on it or reduce the overload. It might be more complex than that. So you have to ask the people at the coalface, is this accurate? The diagnostic tool, in this case, asset say, says it's X, it's overload. How would you deal with that overload in the context of your work? And they come up with the best solutions themselves, the employees. Then you do the intervention. But you measure before and after what's the impact on labor turnover, on sickness absence, on performance, and see, does it work? So organizations themselves should be doing this. The problem, of course, is that's okay with big organizations like the big construction industry, big IT companies, et cetera. But what about the SME sector, the small and medium-sized enterprises that don't have much HR, certainly don't have occupational health? Um, how do we help them? That's another really important uh, area. And in the UK, for example, the the, the 60 something like 60 percent of people working in the private sector work for an SME. They don't work for the big boys. Only about 40 percent work for the, the big organizations. Yeah. And that that's a problem we have is we have to think about how we help the SME sector. But for the big ones, they're beginning to think strategically. Let the senior leadership team or the board. Uh, I would even go further than that. I'd say that on every board <clears throat> of every company, we ought to have a non-executive director who's responsible for employee health and well-being. It is such a critical issue 
for not only the health of employees, but from the point of view of the chief finance officer and the CEO on the performance and productivity of that organization. So if if they say the most valuable resource we have is the human resource, then put it at the core of, of your strategy by having a non-executive director on the board, ensuring that the organization actually delivers in terms of employee health and well-being. Hi listeners, Jason here. We hope you're enjoying this latest podcast episode. Now, if you're like Joelle, Alicia and myself and enjoy learning from the best, then the Flourish DX Academy is for you. The Academy includes free e-learning courses on the ISO 45003 standard for psychological health and safety at work and associated topics such as how to conduct a psychosocial risk assessment and how to create the business case for psych health and safety. All courses feature high-quality videos, downloadable resources, multi-choice questions, and a downloadable training certificate on completion. Take your learning to the next level with all Flourish DX Academy courses included within the Flourish DX mobile app. Select podcast episodes from the Psych Health and Safety Podcast and sister podcasts from Canada and the USA are also included. Get started with Flourish DX for free at www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. That's www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. Now back to this episode. Yeah, and you know, I mean, when when um, Dennis Stevenson and Paul Farmer did the the um, Stevenson Farmer review, you know, um, Dennis was very keen that actually health and well being was a reportable item on the board, and and effectively, if it's on the board and part of the board, then then you're going to get you know, you're going to get more positive. It will get done. It, 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 yeah. it, Peter, it will get done if it's on the board. You think about this. For decades, we've had a, a gender wage gap. We've had that. We still have it. But OK, it was really bad for decades. Right. In the mm-hmm. UK, when it made when it was made reportable, in other words, the organizations had to report the gender pay gap within their business, that gap narrowed dramatically. That's because the board looked at it and said to the the leadership team running the organization, you've got to deal with this. You, HR director, that's your responsibility. The gender pay gap is high. It's making us look bad. Get 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 a hold of this. Deal with it. And they have. Once it's a board issue, if the board says, why do we have such high sickness, stress-related sickness absence in our organization? Why is our labor turnover very high? If we have somebody on the board saying that on behalf of employees, in a sense, on behalf of HR, saying we have a real problem here, then going to the HR director or the occupational health people and saying, you know, you got to deal with this. This is way too high for us. It will get done. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I've seen that. You know, when, if you issue a notice, Kerry, the um, it does get it, it 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 does get the onto the attention of the board very very quickly. That um, you know we're we're sort of we're we've done something which has raised our profile before the regulator as as we did. Um, and I mean, in, in, you know, interestingly enough, HSC was approached about uh, five years ago to get involved in ISO 45003, 
to the international standard on psychological health and safety and, and well-being as it became. Um, and, and I'm interested in your thoughts because one of the things we've always had a, in our armory um, when I was a regulator was the regulations, reg free, requiring up from the management reg, requiring you to do a risk assessment, reg five, uh, showing some way how you're going to improve the, the, the hazards that you've found. Um, and so if you look in 45,003, many of the things that we've talked about um, are, are in there. I know they're in there intentionally. Um, and, I, and I'm interested, you know, had we said 25 years ago, hey, Kerry, do you reckon we'll get an international standard on psychological health and safety? Did, I, I think we would have just probably laughed. Um, wouldn't we? Yeah, I think they would have done. But I'm glad. See, we need that. We need actually, you know, like, for example, just on in a, in a company, I've been on the board of a number of companies, organizations, you know, and when we do a risk register, which you always do at a board meeting, right? Yeah. Increasingly now we're seeing things like stress or well-being as a risk factor. You know, we're looking at labor turnover as a risk factor. Are people leaving the organization? We're looking at stress-related ill health, mental health, particularly mental health has become very, very significant and popular by organizations to, to focus in on. So we're beginning to see, and once you have a risk register for the board of an organization, the board of a company or or public sector body. Remember, in the UK, it's strange because the only organization to have a non-executive director on, on its boards, would you believe, in, in the UK, is the National Health Service. Every hospital now has a non-executive director on its board, and that person's responsibility is for the health and well-being of the staff in that hospital. Now, that's what we need to do is see that in the private sector now. No, absolutely. I think, um, you know, and and that's that's the, I guess that these are the golden eggs that we looked at. <laughs> you remember we, we talked about what we what we, we we'd like to see and what would be the perfect the perfect outcome. Kerry, I'm going to take you right back to the beginning with this question. If you had a chance to go back when you first started out as a PhD student in psych health and safety, what would have been the best bit of advice you would have given yourself? Given where you're now, I, I guess I guess the the best advice I would have given myself would be to be brave and to try to do studies that could make a difference and not take the easy route. But PhD students and their supervisors, I think, tend to do research, which is, you know, maybe maybe in a way it's it's totally understandable because you want your student to achieve success they, you want them to become an adult academic and to do that you need a phd therefore uh let's go that route which is an easy route and you'll get it but i think when i if uh, i had a i had a, a phd supervisor who was very good and actually in a funny sort of way i didn't i i, I didn't actually do a PhD on stress. I did a PhD on T groups, the impact that T groups are having on people's behavior. Uh, it was a, it was almost like psychotherapy for normals. 
tea groups. It's, it, it was yeah. run in the nine. It was run in the nineteen sixties and early nineteen seventies, and. In a way, I was very lucky to have a PhD supervisor, fantastic man, who enabled me to do what I wanted to do, which was in a way a kind of intervention study. Because he asked me to go and look at the running of tea groups and see what was affecting the learning behavior of people on it. Did their behavior change as a consequence of this? So it was a kind of intervention study, a more controllable intervention study, but it was. So I'd like to see more of that, of, you know, enthusing students to try to make a difference. And particularly now when we need these kind of intervention studies, I wish supervisors would be uh, would be more ambitious, braver and get their get their students in this field to try to do to find, to answer the question, what works? to help us yeah. collect the evidence so that we know uh, what works in the context of the workplace and in, in context of employee health and well-being. I'd like to see that. I don't at the moment see, I see some of it, but not a lot of it. Because remember, supervisors themselves don't want their students to fail, you know, and, and they're worried, no. that, oh my goodness, they'll never publish this or they'll they'll be criticized in a, in a viva etc. But that's our future. We have to just be brave in this thing. Just like organizations are becoming more brave themselves yes. and looking at this as a strategic issue, putting it on the board papers or putting it on the senior leadership team's papers for for meetings. I think the, the you know we have to be brave in 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 collecting the the evidence from a higher education point perspective. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just the same principles that you talk about in that relationship between supervisor and uh, and uh, and the person. Do um, sorry, what's the term? The technical term and um, so the candidate, the PhD candidate. It's actually yeah. the same as a relationship you have with your boss at work, isn't it? In terms of like support and actually trying to get the best things out of it. Um, uh, so it, it, you know, I think it's um, something that. Whilst you know work and the workplace has a huge role in 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 taking forward some of the, some of the work that, that we've done around workplace well-being, you know when the when it, when it first hit the ground, we had mindfulness, um, and when we had resilience training, and then we had this the crystals in the in the nineties, um, and then you know where people were um, are much more down to the individual interventions. Um, yeah. I was getting excited, Kerry. I was getting excited. We were starting to look at at, at, at organisational interventions, and and um, and I really hoped that um, as a consequence of what we what we've been through through the the lockdowns and uh, and COVID, and, and that was actually we we might actually kickstart this whole bit of work about getting organisations to manage uh, work related stress at source, but to promote I, I... mental health. Yeah. And if you think about like I am you know the World Health Organization right last year come out with um prevention, promote, protect, and support. What is that, Kerry? That's primary, secondary, and tertiary, but it's been rebranded yeah, and relabeled. Yeah. And the, yeah, the yeah, ultimately, exactly. ultimately, well-being and health, that prevention, promote a that protect and um promote, which is a central bit 
of what the World Health Organization has there is where we're at. Let's create workplaces that create healthy people. And let's let's put protective factors in. And that's taken us right back, I think, to the days when we were when we were looking at, you know, back to the 1970s. Don't you think creating the right workplaces that give people the ability to go home healthy? I think what is really significant now, and I'm so pleased to see, is organizations are now focusing in on not just the stats that say long-term sickness absence is primarily due to stress, anxiety, and depression, the common mental disorders. They know that and they want to deal with that. But what I think is really driving them is the need for retaining and attracting a new generation of, of talent. So the Z generation, the young millennials, these people, everybody calls them snowflakes. They'll flip from one organization to another if they don't like the culture. And organizations get it now. And if we're to attract these young people, then we have to create the right culture. They're not actually snowflakes. They just won't put up with what their parents put up with. Their parents to pay mortgages uh, were prepared to stay in crap jobs, in lousy organizations. These kids, first of all, most of them can't afford a mortgage, right? So they don't have the commitments behind them. They won't get that till they're about 35. What they want is good quality of working life. They want to work hard, but they don't, they want to feel valued, trusted. They want, if they want to have a get up in the morning and going to work and please to be in the workplace because they're going to make a contribution. And their organization is making a contribution to society. So the retaining and attracting that generation is a big driver for organizations now. So how do we create the culture? And creating the culture means being much more strategic about this. It's not just beanbags. They're not looking for ping pong tables, these kids. They're looking for good quality of working life uh, where their line manager which is really important. It's another problem we have, I think. The the untapped, the real submerged problem in the well-being and stress field is the fact that we have the wrong kind of line managers in place now. In other words, we have line managers from shop floor to top floor in most organizations in most developed countries who are there by dent of tent of of actually having uh, a good uh, skill base. In other words, they're recruited and promoted based on their technical skills, not their people skills. That's a big untapped area, by the way. So that rule require a strategic approach. What we need in that, and, and, and young kids, remember who influences you the most in your job? Your boss, your line manager. If we have people a high proportion of whom don't have the good people skills, we got problems. And so unless we tackle that and ensure in the future that we recruit and promote people to managerial jobs who where there's parity between their people skills and their technical skills, this problem will continue for a while. So that's another major area. We talked about intervention studies, but then another biggie for me is we don't do 
a good enough job in thinking through in promoting somebody to a management role or recruiting them from outside do they are they good people skills will there be people will they be people who will make people feel valued uh uh, will have a good man, uh, management style, which manages people by praise and reward rather than fault finding. Uh, people who will be good listeners. That is the kind of line manager we need all the way up the hierarchy. And uh, the good news, I think, is employers now, big companies and organizations, are beginning to realize how important that is if they want to reduce stress-related sickness absence, but get higher productivity, which is a big, big issue. Yeah. So the landscape's looking good. Finally, one very quick piece of advice you think you could give our listeners as to as to what is important in, in right now to tackle work-related mental ill health and to promote mentally healthy workplaces. So to, we end we always end with one one last um very quick bit of advice that you'd like to give the listeners so that okay if you're somebody you. in, if if you're somebody working in this field if you're an hr person uh working in a big organization or occupational health i would say the following if i had one thing to do in fact i was just talking about it a minute ago if i had one thing i had to do to try to change it, but it needs more than that. It needs a more strategic approach. The one thing I would do would look at the 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 issue of the line manager. I think that's really fundamental. Your boss, you know, people don't leave a job or an organization. They leave a boss. And that is so fundamental, particularly for the next generation who want to feel valued and trusted and the like. So if I was to give one piece of advice, Focus in on the people you have in line management roles from the bottom of the organization all the way to the top. Give them the training they need, but ensure in the future when you recruit them or promote them that you get a parity between their people skills and their technical skills. And that, I think, would go a long way to creating the right kind of culture. Brilliant. and. As always, Kerry, um, I could talk for hours with you about various different things, but unfortunately, they've given me a time limit on the podcast, so so we so we need to finish. Um, yeah, I know it, it, we. It's been great to, to to continue this journey with you, and you know, um, and um, over the years and many times that we've met, and we had really you know at times challenging and interesting conversations, but um, but actually, you know. Um, Long, long may you continue to be an influence in this area, and uh, I look, you know, and I look forward to having further conversations with you. So, what Absolutely. I like to do, it's been great over the years working with you, Peter. We've worked together for God knows how many years now, at least twenty-five, and yes. uh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, you've done a lot through the health and safety executive to make a, a meaningful change in this area. And uh, yeah. it's great. We have to keep up doing the work because the health and well-being of people at work is really important. It's not only important for the organization, but it's important for their families. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you've always been a constant source of encouragement, but also challenge in equal measure. So I think that's a really good thing because, you know, you, 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 you've sort of pushed us along that way. So what I'm going to do is obviously now as we come to the end of the recording, I just want to remind the listeners that you can listen to us on the various different formats that you, that you listen to your podcast um, and, and we hope that you will. Also, you can find us on YouTube. And so it leaves me to simply say thank you very much, Kerry. And we look thank forward you. look forward to the next chat. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.